Welcome back, pop culture theologians. It's me, your main boy, John, and we've got the extra of extra specialist guests today, our regular mainstay. So you're not really so much a special guest anymore. And Jeanette, welcome back. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back, my monarchist. No, I'm a um, Diana royalist. There's my. <laughs> you're a Dianaist. Yes, one hundred percent. I claim that term. I, I'll claim Dianaist. Do you think that's out there? Do you think that when we just think about the monarchy, that we're just like pro Diana? I think there's an entire generation and um, generation that also birthed a generation that are one hundred percent Dianaists. Uh, well, we love Diana. We're going to be covering episodes seven and eight. That's right. Only one more ep- one more podcast episode until we're done with this season of The Crown. Um, but we are recording this on a Saturday in April when the sun's finally out here in California and it's probably snowing in Missouri. Right, Anjanette? Actually, we have a very sunny day today in St. Louis, but it's extremely windy and we have a wind chill that makes it like 40 degrees. So, got know. it. But, um, Anjanette, a really important person in pop culture as well as uh, British culture, uh, as well as something very topical for what we are dealing with today, um, passed away this uh, recently. Who is it? Dame Edna. Um, she Dame was, Edna. Uh, she's a, a phenomenal um, presence and and um, pop culture icon for the the British Commonwealth because she's actually Australian. But she had a British television show in the eighties, which basically was the first foundational um, show for drag um, in a public light. And um, Dane Dane Edna. Um, walked so that RuPaul um, could run um, or sashay down the runway. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a sad day, but also a, what a beautiful legacy that Dame Edna had. Yes. Rest in peace, Barry Humphreys, who died at the age of 89, the fabulous violet hair of theirs. And we love them so much. Yep. Well, we got we got some drama to go through today, we sh- AJ. We sure do. Yep, we sure do. One thing we were discussing right before we hit the record button was how this season of The Crown is really just doing Charles's dirty work for him. It's really becoming, um, in real time, a pro-Charles monarchy propaganda. But this is not a pro Charles podcast. Not at all. Not at all. We are here to deliver the truth. And Peter Morgan, you better shape up. I mean, I, I don't, right? You better shape up. But I, I think it's only going to go downhill from here. Um, I am still, I said it, I think, in a couple of podcasts earlier, maybe even last season. I am, and I'm becoming even more so, I'm deathly afraid of how they're going to um, treat, I mean, spoiler alert again, um, the death of Diana, because they have been so relentless in showing, not showing the wholeness of Diana. And and so I'm really worried about what will happen next season when we have to tackle 
that. Um, did, did you feel that way when um, the queen was still alive? I feel that now that she's gone in real life, that there are, you know, forces that be that are forcing kind of this narrative. That's a good question. I do think that the, it might have changed. Um, we could have seen a different season and definitely probably not a, a glow up of Charles and a pro Camilla stance if the queen had still um, kept on. <laughs> I guess you could say it. Yeah, there's just something about it right now that I just feel like I didn't feel it in the same way before, but maybe, maybe, you know, that's different. Yeah, and especially because this the new season that's currently filming right now is filming in a post Queen Elizabeth II um, world. And so I think we will, we will see uh, a definitely even a, a larger shift in tone of the, of the series than what we've seen in the last two seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no better way to get into our Charles and Camilla hating rants than getting into it so aj are you ready i sure am all right let's get going all right so the title of episode seven is called no woman's land aj this seems a little weird considering how the episode is structured but when we think about this episode what are some of our main takeaways so this is um it's it's an episode that's setting up for a crucial crucial episode which is episode 8. Um and so we get introduced to really get introduced to Martin Bashir who is an investigative journalist who has spent quite a few years investigating the royal crown um, the monarchy but more specifically I think he touts himself off as a a princess of Wales and a prince of Wales. Um, scholar or journalist or historian we could say yes but what happens is we have a voiceover of diana talking about how no one prepares her no one prepares anyone for the what it's like to be separated and she claims that it's a no man's land and then she recoins it doing her story work and gender work Um, no woman's land and that she feels like she's neither married nor single neither royal nor normal and that she's single but it's a very lonely life and what we also see is we get the first really introduction of a a teenage prince william who is now the duke of edinburgh Um, excuse me not the duke of edinburgh he is the now prince of wales um, now that he is the heir um, to crown and we see diana get introduced into the the dating scene and she falls in love the wig game we got wigs going on yes we do we got some a little bit of um clandestine rendezvousing um that happens and we see william um really kind of finding his footing in the world because he's at Eton and Eton is near um, the queen's residence. So he gets to really kind of form a a, a relationship with the queen. And so it's really ultimately showing at how the separation while isn't really working 
could have succeeded in many ways, but that we had a very stubborn, stubborn ox of a man named um, Charles who just really struggles with this separation because Diana's just finding, I would say she was finding a footing and a very solid footing in the public's eyes on she just kept being the princess of Wales and the crown was okay with it because, you know, it, it preserves the marriage. It preserves the heir apparent and the queen and, and Prince Philip don't see anything wrong with it because it's probably akin to their relationships, but Charles is not having it. Yeah. I mean, so let's start off with the juxtaposition of William right away at this episode. We all know Prince Charles hated going away to school, but here William is at Eton and Diana is being a loving mother. And like, again, we see Charles then offside uh, say that he's she's smothering him and that, you know, he William is not so jazzed about school, but it's a very different idea than what prince charles had when those episodes came out a couple of seasons ago but here we get again have the queen looking longingly out her window at prince william's you know dormitory eating itself says why don't we have him over for tea because it always comes down to duty for her right right and i think this is a really good moment where we do see a shift in modernity and the monarchy that William does go to Eton and he doesn't go off to Scotland to a boarding school. And yes, Eton is a a slightly boarding school atmosphere because he is removed and he is sleeping, you know, on grounds, but he does have this access, this direct access to family, to the the queen. Um, He can ring up his mom. He can ring up his dad and they can, you know, visit him for the day. And it's a little bit different and, and less, we definitely understand it as less rigid, than what Charles um, experienced. And there's a scene where, you know, William very much so says, you know, Charles is still kind of haunted by his education and and what was forced upon him by his father. And maybe this is an instance where we're seeing that Charles is an active participant in removing generational trauma, but I don't buy it. Yeah. I, I think, um, Charles I think causes it's... generational trauma. He doesn't, right. he doesn't heal it. <laughs> right. I do think that it's, I think the, the impetus of William going to Eton and then, you know, Harry will too. Um, I think it's Diana. And then I do think that Charles is like, yeah, I do agree that I had a horrendous treatment. I support this. I don't think he's like initiated it, but I do think he does support it. So yeah, it becomes, I, I'm a firm, firm believer that this season is just a Charles apologetics. Yeah. That it's a reworking of his image, of his character, definitely of his physical body. I mean, they um, had him break dancing in the last episodes <laughs> that we covered, so why not? Right. Um, and so, but I, I do see that it's an He's not a regular prince. He's a cool prince, to quote Mean Girls. Right. And it is this, another... Ep- a window of we're seeing a, like a geriatric queen is that she's playing this 
this role of the grandmother of granny that she's hearing and she's supporting William in ways that she probably didn't even support her own children when they were off to school, that she's more concerned about William and Harry and the things that they've had to endure as children because of their, their families, you know, their, their parents' separation and infidelity and, and publicity that we are seeing that she was a very active grandmother. And we know that in history is that um, she was a very fierce um, protector of her, her grandchildren, which makes the the current treatment of Harry's children really just so hard to bear um, because she was very still protective even of even her great-grandchildren. And what Charles is doing to Lilibet and Archie is just kind of, I, I can't. I can't. Well, none of us can. But I think the main theme that it's really trying to show off is that Diana's also alone in this world in many yeah. ways now that we have the very lonely scenes in the beginning. But now with William gone, the only person that Diana feels comfortable confiding in her life is her acupuncturist. Yes. I I don't have an acupuncturist. I hear, I mean, if someone was sticking needles into me, I probably would tell them all of my secrets. But oh, yeah. this sets up something that we all will come to talk about here very soon is that her acupuncturist is, her husband is going to go through surgery. And Diana's like, well, I'll just come with you. And that's just something that I always find really funny, right? Because one, of course, Diana like would go with her acupuncturist to ho- the hospital um, because that's who she was. So I totally believe it. But two, it's just like the, princess of wales is just going to walk into a hospital and sit there and be in a fabulous like versace or chanel suit and then like be hanging out there with them (laughs) yeah um it definitely it helps like if you understand that she was a patron of hospitals so she could walk in there and or she could go into the back door and then meet her friend you know on the floor and what we do see is when she is supporting um, twofold things happen is that she supports her her acupuncturist husband as he's um, getting a biopsy or, or heart surgery that she gets introduced to what we will later understand as as she's coined it as one of the loves of her life and yes. or the great loves of her life dr khan and also we truly finally get a glimpse of what we all know as supporters of the princess diana as being the people's princess and she goes continuously even after the surgery she continues to go back to the hospital without the publicity without bodyguards without anyone and she goes at like 10 o'clock at night at 11 o'clock at night and she visits with patients there to just to give comfort to sit there to to see how they're doing and um for me, that moment, I think it was a really beautiful moment and it brought a tear to my eye <laughs> to see finally a glimpse of the Diana that I know. Yeah. And um, she, and in that, she falls in love with the, a Pakistani do- doctor named Hasnat Khan and they will have a relationship for two years from 1995 to 1997. And she had nicknamed him Mr. Wonderful. And to understand this extent of this relationship is she goes to visit his family in Lahore, Pakistan in 1996. So this was a very, very serious um, relationship. And he will ultimately um, attend her funeral. And 
what we know from a lot of her family and her personal butler and after she passes is that they were considering marriage and they were considering um, really a long lasting relationship, but Dr. Khan couldn't handle the the media and the paparazzi and um, that she would still have to somewhat do royal duties. And so that's what ultimately um, will end their relationship. But we see this a budding relationship. We see Diana giddy with infatuation and feeling um, taken care of and wanted in ways that um, she hasn't in a really, really, really long time. And maybe even ever in her marriage. Yeah, that... it's a different type of love that you they're trying to present here. Yeah, and I find it really interesting that um, they don't give it the treatment that, say, they gave. Like, you are clearly also seeing another bias here. Um, because the treatment that Camilla got with introducing her as this epic love for Charles... We don't see it very much with Dr. Khan. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that he was also brown, that he was a Pakistani. He was not even just, you know, he wasn't even British. He was a, a British Commonwealth and that that poses a problem. But it also opens up a door to talking about why Martin Bashir is really, really successful in gaining entrance into talking to Diana is because he himself is of Pakistani birth. And so she sees uh, a common thread or maybe a, a a similarity between Martin Bashir and her Mr. Wonderful. So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, two things I want to say. You mentioned that she's the pa uh, patron of hospitals. What are you a patron of, AJ? What am I a patron of? Oh, good question. Oh, man. I'm a pa patron of soccer. I'm a patron of um, supp supporting Tibet and the, and the Himalayan um, people. And I support and I'm a patron of rhinos. And rhinos. Yes, you're the patron saint of rhinos. Oh, I'm the patron saint of candy shops because we all know how much I love candy. You do. I do. But while we're introducing this whole narrative about her love life, the BBC, to hit your point that you just were talking about, comes front and center with a really young and hungry reporter named Martin Bashir. Uh, tell me a little bit about Martin Bashir back then. Who was he? So he was a, a British um, monarchy investigative journalist. He works for a secondary umbrella of um, the BBC that does more investigative journalism. And he starts to notice um, some, he was definitely there when um, Charles and Diana went on that faded yacht family trip and he saw the cracks on the wall of the marriage and we definitely know that he is a supporter um, of Diana. And so he wants to get a story of talking about um, British, of, you know, hearing the world to hear Princess Diana's story in light of the disastrous interview that Prince Charles did, Ugh. where he ultimately admitted that he was an adulterer um, in his marriage. And he will 
Now, there's some things that happen that it might have been nefarious in how he gets to Diana, but ultimately he will use her brother, the Earl Spencer, um, to Charles Spencer to get entrance into Diana. And what we see is that she hasn't spoken to her brother in two years, but largely because he was also getting horrendously hounded by the press and his own um secretary or his it was his military or his protection was caught um, selling secrets and using and selling his rubbish and his personal correspondence with princess diana to the public to the public yeah and so um bashir brings with goes to the um charles spencer suggesting that um, Diana is being tapped, is being followed, not by the paparazzi, but by the crown and by MI5 or MI6 or the security services. And what we also see is that um, Diana is really starting to experience. She's see- hearing clicks on the phone. She gets into her car and um, her brakes fail while she's driving. To go meet her brother. Yeah. So and, Martin Bashir, though, does some really cheeky things. Yeah. Yeah. He falsifies documents. He lies in a way um, to make sure he can get access because also, don't forget, it's all about the ratings, AJ. It is, you know, and now it's all about that clickbait. That clickbait because the BBC isn't doing so well. And so Martin Bashir knows. Um, and they try to make it seem that this is how they'll get back. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Bashir mentions that it's the royal family sees her as a threat because of her power, because of her popularity. And Diana says, oh, I know everything. And that, you know, she does understand that she's, she poses a threat. And, um, you know, Bashir mentions to her you know the bigger the threat the bigger the lies that are used to silence it and i do think that there is i don't think that the british crown and mi6 or the government or the security services um have their hands clean here i do think that they were tapping her i do think that they were watching her um do i think that it might have been nefarious at the start of it no i do i do think that they were keeping tabs on her to potentially build her up to get her completely out. And they were probably building a case, you know, here in 1995, 1996. So I, I, I do think that Bershire maybe had documented, you know, articles or things to get in, but I don't think it was from the truth, you know, far from the truth. I think that he didn't have access to the documents, you know, at his time frame. But I, I think that it was very real. And the paranoia that Diana was feeling, the isolation that she was feeling, the loneliness and the hounding of the paparazzi and people were all very real. And what comes out of this interview, which we'll talk about in episode eight, I think stands the test of time and actually does more damage to the crown and because of her death but i get i get 
um, we're, we're jumping ahead. So let's talk about, is there something that you really found interesting in um, episode seven about Brashear or the connection between him and Khan? Well, Khan is just, we finally see her being able to be in love for a second, yeah. right? And how the crown will go at any reach to kind of, in a way, ruin it. And then also how Diana also might be self-sabotaging in some ways. But I couldn't get over the fact that Diana just like lays in and like tells everything to William. That seemed like a very uncomfortable phone call. Yeah, where she talks to him about um, that she's she she thinks she's found someone and William's very uncomfortable um, with it and really kind of has. But I think it was more so I don't. You know, it's one of those that I wonder how much of it was he was one of the only safe people she could talk to. And she calls him, you know, her rock. How much of it was she was really worried that if someone picked up on her dating someone, that it would get to him before she was able to explain it to him. And that I do think that there's a level of when, you know, it, it... hardens the fact that there is continual generational unhealthiness going on that even though diana is really trying to do her best she is in a system and a structure and a family that there's only so much that can happen yeah and while diana tells him everything william also mentions that he's going to go have tea with granny and she says Mm -hmm. put in a good word for her um which kind of sticks with him in a a really different way because he's starting to realize as an older child now that not not everything is all right in camelot right and that she's feeling that the queen is actively keeping her at bay and that she hasn't done any events with the queen the queen hasn't invited her over to tea And William does mention it to the queen and saying, hey, you know, mama asks me, you know, mom asks me to to put in a good word. And the queen then goes to her sister and says, hey, you know, you're you you live at the same palace with Diana. Aren't you friends? (laughs) Exactly. And um, bless Margaret's heart. She says, um no you know we're not friends but Margot, you know margaret has um sympathy for um elizabeth because she sees elizabeth or diana as an outsider who is emotionally complex who has struggled to lead a life um and that she has flair and character and even margaret says star quality <laughs> to kind of like dig at elizabeth at the queen and then she says, the system isn't easy for people like us. And we really see Margaret being, being very sympathetic to Diana, but also being very like, hey, but I towed the line. You can too. I love these dinner scenes. It's like yeah. all of the little like dinner and breakfast scenes between the queen and her very close family members. Like in the previous season when you know olivia coleman's queen says well you had your own ballerinas i recall didn't you or to these little scenes where like i don't know the children turned out perfectly fine when charles and diana go away to australia and what could be wrong with leaving your children for six months at a young age right right 
And I do think that there is a level that we do see where I think the queen fails to recognize that there what there needed to be a, a little bit different of relationship and treatment with her and Diana. She assumes that because Diana's of the peerage, that Diana is ingrained in the family, that she is doing her duty to the crown, that she can treat Diana like the rest of the family and not talk to her and keep her on the peripheral. And this is where it will ultimately bite the queen in the um her the, her handoff, I guess you could say, even yep. in episode eight, because she keeps Diana completely in the dark on on her views on her, on her treatment of her, on what she sees Diana is to the the crown and to the family, and keeps her in that isolation and create, you know reads this idea for diana to really kind of say yes to martin Bashir, yeah and that's ultimately where um episode seven ends with her going to Bashir and saying um yes i agree um to this um interview because i'm feeling like i'm being persecuted that i'm resented by the queen that um and he promises protection and trust and what we see is that she goes diana goes swimming she dons her famous harvard sweatshirt and biker shorts which is just almost it you know as iconic as her revenge dress because she was seen everywhere in those um, sweatshirts and, and biker shorts and she drives away from kensington palace smiling yeah which leads us to episode eight. You know, it's really interesting too, because like Diana's naivete, but she's also smart at the same time, alongside her ability to capitalize on, I think the love narrative that they're pushing out here in a little bit Mm -hmm. allows her to feel more open and maybe albeit brave for her to say yes to Bashir. Right. And I think that her being in a healthy, loving relationship with Dr. Khan is also one of those things where she sees what her life could be outside of the loneliness and the isolation of being part of the royal family and spurns her to be like, hey, wait a second, Charles got an entire, he got to say what he wanted to say and I've I've grinned and bared it and I've kept silent and I'm, I keep getting hounded and I'm not being you know, included into the family, even though I'm doing what you're telling me to do. So I'm done. I'm I'm done. People need We're to know done. my side and I, they need to know my suffering and they need to know that I am suffering in grace and style, but that there is a suffering that, and an inclusion, I think ultimately that she's hoping will come from it, that maybe the Royal family will finally hear her and bring her back into the circle or not not (laughs) (laughs) so we we end this episode and then we open up with i don't know is this one of your favorite episodes of the season uh it's it's i think one of the most complex of of the episodes because there's a lot there's a lot happening here um i don't know if it's my favorite because i think they fail in a lot of things of what they're trying to do and i don't care for that they 
how they set up Diana in this, but I do find it very interesting how they're using um, the interview and William now and Charles and the Queen in how they understand and how they participated in Diana's life. Is it yours? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm so glad. (laughs) Yeah, no. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite episode this season. And you know, I rewatch this show like all the time just for like comfort. Yeah, I really struggle this season. I don't know if I have, I mean, there's moments, there's moments of being, I'm like, ah, here it is. Here's, this is what I really wanted to see. And it's just, it's really, it's so fleeting and so far between that this season it's it is a struggle so we enter into this episode and it's titled gunpowder and our red uh resident scholar aj will tell you all about what that means and if you haven't seen v for vendetta like just pause this episode (laughs) now come back pause watch it and then come back and you'll hear the same stuff we do in our head but we open up with the board of governors at the bbc where you you know this general director john beard you know is calling a session to order but it's technically not his to call because the board chairman duke john hussey you know is the dookie is the one to do it and dookie is also the husband of the queen's foremost lady in waiting um and so you know he comes in And it's very old versus new. It's, you know, the celebrating of the 10-year renewal of the Royal Charter asserts that, you know, it comes with this mandate to stay the course, very queen-like, very duty-like. But then, you know, the director general has a very different idea of it. It's this young versus older, new age versus not. And that's why they're losing viewers. And they have to do something very rapidly to change the scope hint hint spoiler alert spoiler alert (laughs) i think it's also meant um good to mention that the bbc is functioning over or on an ideal that was created by a scotsman john reith who died in 1971 and he was a director of the bbc in 1923 and he creates what's called the um, rethalian public broadcasting ideals and that is ultimately that Um, The BBC is meant to inform, educate, and entertain in that order. That entertaining is the last of their mandate. And there's this um, four principles that they are meant to do in all of their broadcasting and everything that they do. And that is um, is to be protected from commercial pressure, to serve the whole nation, to be under the control of a single unified body, um, and basically to be a monopoly on what's being broadcasted for the British people, which is why they are given the Royal Charter. So everything about the BBC is, it is linked 100% to the crown. And it is, is it state, it's state sanctioned news in a way, right? Yes. Like, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's called British broadcasting and the fact that it is the british crown or the bbc that is given all of the protocols of what to happen with all forms of the monarchy so they are versed in the security um, protocols of what happens when a royal member dies they had all of the protocols what was called um, london bridge when the queen passed um, on what to do they are the first ones to report 
um, the passing of the monarch of any member of the royal crown, as well as any births and weddings. And so they will be the first and only um, television broadcasting, and then they will then sublet it to the world um, through them. And, and that's why Dookie, in the episode where the king dies way, way, way back when in season one, they have to give the BBC the go ahead. Yes. And it was the BBC that reported the separation of the princess and Prince of Wales and the like. And Dookie really embodies that he is the public, a form of a public arm for the crown and a mouthpiece for the crown. And he, in this, you know, broadcasting meeting says that he sees the BBC as anti because anti always knows best. And does not un, does not believe that the BBC should be on the forefront of being modern or progressive. That they need to be this traditional, um, you know, stalwart um, mainstay in people's homes. Whereas the d- director understands that, you know, needs to be something avant garde, something different. And really, what we see is. <laughs> The BBC, the Queen absolutely loves the BBC. She doesn't. Of course she does. She doesn't want to abandon the BBC. So when William is there at another. I love this scene. You know, um, he he mentions to her that, you know, maybe you should get a satellite so that you could see, you know, other channels. And she says, I can't do that. I I have to only watch. I have to. I can't abandon the BBC. I got to watch only my chat, the BBC. I got to watch my programs. Right. Um, the the standard programs for the BBC, which also includes an Anglican church service, which includes a God Save the Queen broadcast. Like, it's very monarchist in that. But then William kind of seeds, sows the it's seed so by saying, funny. but, you know, Granny, you can watch racing. Um, and she's all like, wait, really? This, I can woman, this woman is... Is she is a hoe for these horses? I mean, she absolutely she and her mother really loves their gamblers at heart, you know. Um, and I mean, what else do you do when you have all that money? Right, and she, um, she even mentioned she's like, I can't, I can't have a uh, a satellite on the palace. I'll become a Catholic. You can't have an image of the the palace with a dish on top. Can you imagine when people are like, how is the queen getting her news? Dish TV or the BBC? She's horrified by this, <laughs> this suggestion. Yeah. Right. And um, what we see is that she's also, um, you know, she's having an interaction with her ladies in waiting. And they talk about how the upcoming races, they're going to be watching it on a different channel. And the queen is horrified because she's like, she used to be watching it on the BBC. And they're like, no. Um, the BBC no longer has um, the rights to it because ITV, which is uh, another big um, broadcasting channel in Britain, paid more than the BBC and they lost um, the races to um, the ITV. And now now we're going to see that the, the Queen is going to um, really kind of crumble and she ultimately does get the satellite. She, her and the Queen, the queen Mum will watch the races and whatnot. But what we also see is that, you know, Bashir is working on questions 
for this interview that it is a go that Princess Diana has given him free reign on the questions as well as free reign on the final cut, but that she only asks to be able to tell the queen um, that this is airing before it before airs. It airs. And at what date to, did she choose? She's going to record it on Sunday at King Kensington Palace, and she just so happens to pick November 5th, which is a British holiday. It is Guy Fawkes Day. So let's talk about Guy Fawkes Day, and this is how the episode actually opens, with the ultimate betrayal of high treason being a traitor to the crown. What is Guy Fawkes Day, And AJ? so, yeah, and this episode is, it, they do a very good job of trying to show you what, if you've never known of Guy Fawkes or the 1605 gunpowder plot, we see Prince William learning it in Eton about what this is. And if you've watched, as you mentioned, Be for Vendetta, you understand there's a saying that says, remember, remember the 5th of November. And what it is, is that um, for some, he's deemed as a rebel. Others, he's a political activist. But for or the most part, he's, uh, as a traitor and more maybe even a terrorist. But he's England's most famous traitor. And that be is because his crime is that of high treason. And high treason in England is to try and kill the king. And what happens is Robert Catsby is the leader. He is a um, disenfranchised, disaffected Catholic that leads a, a group of disaffected Catholics to blow up the houses of parliament um, when the king and the queen and the prince of Wales would be there to open up parliament. And so they start off by... Um, 36 barrels of gunpowder get put under the House of Lords, and it is Guy Fawkes's role to light the fuse. And ultimately, this, this entire thing was to slaughter the entire Protestant establishment that would change the country forever. And how we're seeing this to be talked about is juxtaposed to Brashear showing up with his filming crew under a cloak of um, subterfuge to set up the interview for Diana. And ultimately what it's really showing is that Diana is becoming the new guy folks, which I can't stand, but yeah, they really don't bury the lead there. Right. They don't. And what happens is guy folks day becomes a celebration all across England. Um, it's also called bonfire day. Um, that they they literally burn effigies of Guy Fawkes. They kill this traitor, this high treatise, because the plot does not succeed. Um, in November 5th of 1605, they are captured and the monarchy is saved. And so um, Guy Fawkes Day is a celebration that we throat, you know, we, we throated, not throated, um, thwarted um, this epic high treason. We saved the monarchy. And we have destroyed these tr high trees and traitors that would have done horrendous things. And um, everyone absolutely loves Guy Fawkes Day and the royal family. They are seen celebrating. Charles and Camilla are at their own estate having a huge party with their friends. Andrew, Edward, and the Queen and Prince Philip and William is allowed to go to um, the palace to celebrate so he's not at Eton he's at um, he's with the queen and there's um, fireworks that are meant to be had um, burning of 
bonfires and effigies and Charles and Camilla are openly kissing and blah. Yeah. Um, it's so gross. But So a lot uh, happens in a way because we have Martin Bashir and the BBC subplot of them going back and forth and Dookie wanting them to do something to cheer up the old queen um, yeah. and do this like 10 year montage or something about her. And then the young well, it's, it's the the diamond is it the diamond, diamond jubilee, jubilee or, something or, or like the that. marriage it's their marriage yeah it's yeah. some anniversary yeah and then what we find out is that you know Bashir is in the background he finally gets to go ahead they're all ready to go um but and diana's brother much to his credit finds out something is wrong mm-hmm. tries to tell her and she continues to go forward with the interview um and you know we see diana and bashir sit down one last time before the interview um and they talk about everything and he makes one last pitch and she chooses the date for the interview as we've talked about and they move forward and so the big night the modern day gunpowder extravaganza occurs you see them sneak into kensington palace and they tape and they come back and he sneaks all the tapes out of the city and he meets up with the queen, um, with the Bert at the Queen's Hotel and where he's staying under a fake name to edit everything. Just so happens to be the name Catsby, which Catsby. is the name of um, the main of the main um, gunpowder plot name. But I, it's important to know that when, when we see her getting ready, she gets ready by herself yes. for this interview. She takes off the illustrious um, engagement ring, which now sits in the on the hand of um, Kate Middleton, the new Princess of Wales. And she brings in new photos of Will and Harry to be in the background of the interview that will be taking place. And when the director general comes to this hotel and he sees this interview, he is actually kind of un- uh, horrified because he sees Diana as unstable and, and wants desperate to, in a way, like someone and, that wants to inflict harm. Yeah, and desperate, and and he even says wants to inflict significant damage on the monarchy, and so he's really worried about airing this. He's having um, personal, you know, qualms about it, and then we see that the satellites, you know. The, the scene shifts to the satellite being introduced to the palace and being able to watch, you know, multiple shows and, um, but also that she's really struggling with the amount of, you know, um, things being offered on the channel. And she ultimately, <laughs> she, um, the queen mom reminds her that like the first BBC broadcast was um, from Alexandra palace um, was her and the her coronation was the first time that there was mainstream television. So she's like she needs to get on board with <laughs> the television, and she even has this. It's it's another one of those shocking moments that you don't realize that the royals probably had. And she tells she's like, "Do you remember, Mummy, how we were so shocked about commercial TV and color?" Yeah. Um that it's just color tv was just too much for them and what i found really interesting about this episode is that they don't really show a lot 
of the actual dialogue between Diana and Bashir, which you could because it's still in existence. You can still watch the entire interview online. We have all the transcripts. And so my question was like, why? Why don't you spend more time actually in the interview to see how she's mentioning it? Because, you know, the what sh- her goal was to show that she was left out to cope on her own, that she was suffering from a lack of sympathy and feeling and compassion, and that she just, she felt um, that, and that she has tried. And, you know, Brashear asks her multiple times, like, why are you doing this interview? Um, and she says, I've tried, I've tried telling the people, I've tried going to the public, you know, in private to all of the people involved. And that um, every time they've either brushed her aside or especially when it comes to the queen, the queen has been busy or unavailable. And she's even said that she goes, I accept it's not an easy thing to navigate this this family, that we are busy and we are remote because of, you know, we're rarely under the same roof, but that she wasn't getting any, any consideration. And it's a real problem and so before we see even any audio of the actual interview diana goes to the queen to tell her about this interview and this is where we have a really fascinating interaction between the queen and diana and you know diana says hey this is what we're doing and the queen is affronted she's like why would you ever do that she's furious Right. And, and she's all like, I am your defender. And not once has I, you know, have I said anything bad about you. And she, she harps on this fact that she's like, I, why would I, because you're the wife to my eldest son, the mother to my grandson, a valued senior member of the family. And you are the wife to the heir to the throne and the mother to the next. And I will defend you each and every time. And then she says, I am loyal empathetically to the hilt for you. And to the hilt. Do you buy it? I bought, I mean, look, the acting <laughs> is superb. And Amilda Staunton mm-hmm. is, this is where she is the queen for me at, yeah. at all levels of this season. It's okay. Like she's there. Right. I agreed. And this is where she became the queen. Like she, right. when she, this is an Olivia Coleman line. This is like a Claire a Foy Claire line. line. Yep. Like they all have that line in the season where they become the queen. And it took eight episodes, but she's there. And when she says, I have defended you completely and totally and to the hilt. And like she emphasizes every single syllable. And Diana gets it finally, right? The yeah. love well, and that she's, she, she's, yeah. she's dumbfounded. She's all like, wait, what? Like, I did not understand. Wait, like, she's just dumbfounded that this is the reaction by the queen. And the queen also, like, on, also says, like, this enemy, this hostility is a fra- fragment of your imagination. Your and we want you to be happy. And then she has a line, she says, and I think this is a really powerful line. And I, this is where I, I don't know fully if I believe it, but the way she delivers it, I'm all like, okay, maybe. She goes, one day, you are our next queen. And 
I, there was a moment when I was like, I know you believe that, Queen Liz. I know that your husband believes that, but your son definitely is not on board with that. Yeah, and will never be. And um, she mentioned, you know, there's, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a painful scene because I think Diana realizes, uh-oh, this is, this is going to do something now. If this is how you thought we were we were functioning uh this this is gonna be a a problem and you know the director general goes to the chair and is going to have a moment of like maybe we're not gonna run it and he decides no let's burn this mother to the ground let's burn (laughs) this mother to Um, the ground announces that on the prince and this is where i'm all like give me this pettiness all day every day because the prince of wales birthday is the day that the announcement will go out of this interview with princess diana and that is exactly what diana wanted it's all that's you know and i gotta say like between the queen and her's conversation, like I just bring back to how horrible Charles is to her and like, go for it, girl. Yeah. And um, what happens is they, they air it um, on this, on the day that um, the queen and the Duke of Edinburgh is, are in attendance for their wedding anniversary. It's a the seven, 67th variety performance of the support funds and it's a one night only performance. And what we'll see is that there is a song that's being sung while the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are watching it, while the rest of the world is watching the interview between Diana and Martin Bashir. The best line in the entire interview is when, I mean, everyone is watching it and they make it seem like the royal family is watching it, minus the Queen and obviously yeah. King Philip. But like, <sighs> Now, it's not the there were three of us in this marriage line. It's the when she is asked if Charles will ever be king. And she's like, no, he doesn't have what it takes. He she does like cut. Yeah, she says she says. Yeah, she says, who knows what fate will bring. (laughs) It's the best. Yeah. And she says, like, I don't think actually that he wants it because or he doesn't realize what this role means because he was he's always conflicted by it. And he understands that it's going to limit him and he can't handle it. And we see that Charles gets extremely mad while watching it. Um, But the revelations that come out of um, this interview is that Diana sees that the separation makes her, you know, number one problem for the monarchy. She talks about her postnatal depression after William's birth, um, that um, she suffered alone through in the marriage that um, she's been deemed as being crazy, as isolated, that again, that she's the third, that there's always been three in um, the marriage, that she doesn't do the things the way that the royal family does, that she connects to people emotionally and comforts them in distress. And she knows that she didn't just marry into a family, but that she married into a system and for me, one of the great things that she mentions is she said, she says, I won't go quietly and I'll battle till the end, which is why she's doing um, this interview. And then Brashear makes a question to her and she asks her, which B 
becomes huge headlines across the world. Do you think you will be queen? And she responds in this, this response, I think has stayed with me ever since I watched this interview when I was um, a young girl. And she'd say, I'd like, I like to be a queen of people's hearts ends people's hearts. She can't see herself as being a queen, um, but she understands herself as being an issue as a liability and the show doesn't show it. But after that bit where she says that she wants to be um, a queen of people's hearts, she mentions that the biggest disease people suffer from is being unloved. And she says, I know that I can give love for a minute, for a half an hour, for a day, for a month, but I can give, and I'm happy to do that. I want to do that. And so for her, she sees, and this is where I think we really see Peter Morgan being an anti-Diana supporter because he should have included that, that she does see that she has a, a role to play and that she has duty to play. And she was not shirking from that duty and that role and that position, but that she was wanting to make it her own. And she saw that she had compassion and she had, um, the ability to connect to people and help them and, and alleviate suffering and bring the crown into a modern world. And the the family doesn't see it that way. And yeah. so what we see is that, you know, Diana's at home. She's seeing all the news videos and the aftermaths. The queen and, and Prince Philip are reading the papers the chair comes, Dookie comes to the queen to apologize and to resign because he says he doesn't recognize the world that he lives in. And William comes to the queen and they're kind of in silence and they switch channels and she's she's just very flustered and overwhelmed. They settle on, they come back to the BBC to uh, the choir singing a hymn and it's so it like we ends. get it. We get it, Peter right. Morgan. That you you definitely don't like Diana, that you don't you think that she is a modern day guy folks, that she is a high treason, that she was trying to kill the monarchy, if not the heir to the monarchy, and that her ultimate death next season is her fault, basically. Yeah. Yeah, she that's the, the writing on, on the wall that I see. I, that's that what her, I see. I hope it's different, but Right. And there that they presented that the queen did, you know, do everything in her power to make Diana wanted. And this is where, as someone that has been very versed in what had happened and I've read many things and that's just also a complete lie. Like the queen did keep her in isolation and it was Prince Philip that was like her lifeline, but couldn't do enough. Like he wasn't the queen, so he only had enough power. And so her only avenue was to do this interview and that this interview just really it's aged beautifully in the sense of what was mentioned. Maybe not the how the interview came about because Prince William has been very, very vocal and that he felt that Brashear and the um, journalist preyed on her and continues this rhetoric that she was mentally unstable yeah but you know what we see in what happened with megan and how the paparazzi and the isolation and things really do damage to your mental health i don't buy it anymore i don't buy that Bashir preyed on her in that way 
um, or to the extent that's been pre um, presented, because the things that come out of that interview, you do get to see the heart and, and the voice of Diana in a way that she had been silenced for so many years that it, it does start to crumble the crown because people really become Diana supporters. And we're seeing that even in a 2023 standpoint, like the amount of people that have gone on to British, you know, talk shows and talked about how hashtag not my King and they're um, actively protesting it when the um, Charles goes out to an event and talking about how they they find him abhorrent to being the head of the Catholic, the Church of England because he's an adulterer and his second wife there's one man that called into the British news and called Camilla his side piece and I died I was I died of happiness I was like oh my god there are so many people out in the world that have not forgotten and have had, held on to the collective rage and sorrow and grief that they're not willing to understand that, you know, she is the second wife and she is, she was the side piece and she was um, his affair and not queen or not even queen consort. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that these two, two episodes really solidify for me in this season that Peter Morgan what is anti-Diana. Um, sees her as person non grata traitor and it's a charles apologetic but ultimately um and diminishing of the queen in a way that i didn't think was possible and making her this like older and this is i mean this is in the 90s that woman lives for another 20 plus years yeah and they present her like she's this old and prince um, Philip as these geriatric out of touch um, people when it's like come on they, they still have 20 more years where they're actively going across the world and moving and shaking I mean there's a lot going on and you know we get to this episode where like the gunpowder has exploded theoretically <laughs> and what we are getting then is I think the last two episodes of like the fallout from everything yeah yeah, things are things are brewing and um they're not going to be thwarted the way that the 1605 gun plot was. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a lot we've got a lot going on and we have episodes 9 and 10 coming up for you and we'll be back pop culture theologians, right AJ? 100% 100%, but will the BBC? Of course it will, but that's another story. All right, now everyone. we have multiple channels to choose from. <laughs> and now we have satellite television. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the Queen had an Apple TV? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, she definitely had a Netflix account. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, <laughs> catch you next time. Bye.